The Horde Guardian scorched the ground as he scoured and hunted for the trespasser who had troubled his sleep. Hot and savage, he kept circling and circling the outside of the mound. No man appeared in that desert waste, but he worked himself up by imagining battle. Then, back in he'd go in search of the cup, only to discover signs that someone had stumbled upon the golden treasure. The Guardian of the Mound, the Horde Watcher, waited for the gloaming with fierce impatience. His pent-up fury at the loss of the vessel made him long to hit back and lash out in flames. Then, to his delight, the day waned, and he could wait no longer behind the wall, but hurtled forth in a fiery blaze. The dragon began to belch out flames and burn bright homesteads. There was a hot glow that scared everyone, for the vile Skywinger would leave nothing alive in his wake. Everywhere the havoc he wrought was in evidence. Far and near, the gate nation bore the brunt of his brutal assault and virulent hate. Then, back to the horde he would dart before daybreak to hide in his den. He had swinged the land, swathed it in flame and fire and burning, and now he felt secure in the vaults of his burrow. But his trust was unavailing. Hi, I'm Alexa Sand. And I'm Ian McInnes. And this is Real Fantastic Beasts. Because we believe that learning about animals and history and literature and art helps us understand our place among our fellow creatures today. I loved your, your text there. You want to tell us a little bit about it? Sure, Ian. That's a passage from the Irish poet Seamus Haney's translation of the early English epic poem Beowulf. And it's right at the very end of the poem. Beowulf's an old man. He's established in his kingdom. He's sort of a legend in his own time, I guess you could say. And this domestic security issue arises, which is that a thief, um, and it's interesting because the poet kind of excuses the thief. He had a bad master. He ran away from his master. A thief has snuck into this barrow occupied by a dragon and stolen the cup and gotten away with it. The dragon was sleeping. And so now the dragon is angry and taking his revenge on the gates, the people over whom Beowulf is king. And of course, anybody who's read The Hobbit recognizes in this angry dragon guarding his horde, the dragon Smog, who has an interesting interaction with Bilbo Baggins, a sort of latter day um, thief. Yeah. Thief incarnation. So yeah. And this really raises the point that dragons are so fundamental to our understanding of medieval literature and to the way in which modern fantasy literature represents the Middle Ages. You've got to have a dragon. It's so ironic. Well, funny, should I say. Peculiar <laughs> uh, that you read from Beowulf because I happen to be teaching Beowulf right now and in fact tomorrow i have to teach the section on the dragon and Which is... we're, we're using seamus haney's translation oh great well it's one of my favorite translations um i mean there are many good ones but i i like the way that he you know retains the sort of alliterative patterns of the original verse without making it seem strained but that story that sort of ur-dragon story of the the angry dragon guarding its horde to me is it has all the elements right it's got this almost sympathy for the beast 
in this case, you know, he's justifiably put out that his his horde has been violated and he's just guarding what's his. So he's behaving like an animal does with its lair, you know? And so there's a kind of sense that, that these are real animals. They behave like real animals. And certainly for medieval people, dragons were very much real animals. There was a huge body of literature in the Middle Ages which helped them understand them in this way. I mean, first of all, dragons occur 22 times in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament to Christians and another 13 times in the book of Revelation. So there are a lot of dragons in the Bible, and there's nothing like the Bible for assuring you that something really is real, right? Of course. The word that is used in Hebrew, tanin, could mean serpent, too, though. So there's sort of a question here. Is the Bible talking about a monstrous, huge snake, or is it talking about a flying creature with claws? And There's not enough description anywhere in the Hebrew portions of the Bible to give us a really good sense of that. In the Greek portions of the Bible, the, the word is dracon, and, and that seems more clearly to be the kind of dragon that we imagine in modern fantasy literature, and that, that in fact, the poet of Beowulf is imagining, you know, it's quite clear that this is a fire-breathing, flying animal, right, in the passage from Beowulf. Well, when we were talking about sea monsters it seemed like they also kind of veer serpent yeah right in other words you have this category that we think of as a very narrow idea of a serpent which i guess you could imagine a giant snake and people do and people are afraid of them (laughs) look at all the news about you know boa constrictors in florida but you know we think of it as as completely separate i mean most people would not say well you know dragon serpent yeah whatever they would say no what are you talking about they're completely different but throughout history many monstrous creatures tend to veer towards the serpent yeah and there there's this sense that a serpent you you see them they live in in your neighborhood um crawling around in the grass so it's it's a life form that you're familiar with but this is just a really big one that's really terrifying and in fact in the bestiary in the physiologus which is the sort of standard text on animals as we've talked about before um the section discussing the dragon or the pieces of the of the text discussing the dragon describe it as an enormous serpent it often rushes forth from its cavern into the air and the air glows around it like the devil basically and so it's specifically understood as a kind of figure for the devil but at the same time in the nature of the physiologus there's this sort of natural history observation. The the dragon is the only natural predator of the elephant, according to the physiologus. And the way that it catches elephants, I love this, is it it climbs up in a tree and waits for the elephant to walk by underneath, and then it drops down and squeezes the elephant to death. So to me, that does sound like that really terrifying, enormous anaconda from that horror movie, right? Right. So, there's this idea of a kind of snake dragon. And then my other favorite physiologist thing about the dragon is that panthers, okay, so panthers, which were understood as a figure for Christ, panthers, after they eat a big meal, will sleep for three days. When they wake up, they yawn and roar. And their voice and the, is so sweet and their breath is so attractive and perfumed that all the other animals come running to them except for the dragon who 
burrows deep into the earth to avoid the noxious fumes of this pleasantly scented panther yawn. There's just so much in there. Panther slash Christ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so dragons dragons are another another devil creature, right? Just like the sea monsters often were. Like love, yeah, life, love, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it starts with Michael, the archangel, slaying the dragon in order to clear the path for the resurrection and the second coming of, of Christ. That's in the Bible, too. So how many wings are there on dragons in the Middle Ages? Well, I think we really start to see wings on dragons in art, at least, in the late 11th, maybe the 12th century. And it's interesting because there's a lot of dragon literature in that period, too. So clearly people were thinking more about dragons. And they start showing up, for example, on the edges of maps. Although, I want to uh, blow up a myth. There's this idea that... uh, Medieval maps say at the edges, here be dragons, hicksunt dracones, but they don't. That is not on any medieval map. The earliest occurrence of that phrase is on a globe that was made in about 1504. There are dragons, however, depicted lurking around the edges with all these other sort of marginal creatures. But they start to have really clear, distinct wings in the late 11th, early 12th century. And then there are all these stories. So, you know, The story of St. George is probably the most famous. And the first sort of version of this in which a dragon clearly features is actually quite late. It's from the 13th century. So George um, shows up in a town in Libya sometime in the third century. And um, he sees that the king of this city-state is about to sacrifice his daughter to a dragon. And George is having none of that. We all know the story. He saves the girl. He actually uses her belt and ties the dragon up with her belt and leads the dragon back into town and says to everybody, uh, convert to Christianity or I'll let this dragon off the leash, basically. And they do convert and then he kills the dragon. That story, you know, is sort of another one of these prototypical heroes slaying the dragon stories, but it has this weird twist where he actually sort of weaponizes the dragon in his evangelical zeal. There's a modern uh, fantasy book called The Dragon and the George, which is beloved kind of early fantasy work. And the George is the dragon's word for any human being. They call Uh. call us Georges (laughs) (laughs) because of of the story. Interesting, interesting. You know, George was not the first dragon-slaying saint in the Middle Ages, however. There's a much, much earlier story of a saint, uh, Elizabeth, who was a nun in Constantinople. And she, she was such a good abbess of her little community of nuns that the emperor decided to give them some land within the city limits, but land that was unused. And, you know, had been ruined in an earthquake, I think. So she goes to sort of survey the land to see what they can do with it. And lo and behold, there is a dragon on this piece of property, just hanging out in the city of Constantinople. And Elizabeth is so angry about this. You know, how dare you be here? That she stomps all over the dragon and kills it. So that can't be a very big dragon, right? That sounds rather small. So she tramples the dragon and, you know, reclaims the land. And then, of course, there's Margaret of Antioch, the the 4th century uh, martyr saint. And 
her story dates to about the ninth century. She was, you know, arrested for being a Christian and they started tormenting her in various ways, including they put a dragon in her prison cell and naturally the dragon swallowed her. That's what they do, I guess. And unfortunately for the dragon, she was holding a cross when she was swallowed. And so she basically used the cross to cut her way out or to fight her way out or the cross cut her out, it's not exactly clear. And so she burst forth from the belly of the dragon, slaying it from the inside, I guess you could say. I like the fact that two of the earliest dragon slaying saints happen to be women. Yes, and they, they have not got the coverage no, that they George don't. got. It's, although Margaret is the patron saint of childbirth, which tells you a lot about what childbirth okay. was like in well, the Middle Ages. Being ripped apart from the inside as if you were a dragon yeah. one of the one of my favorite medieval takes religious takes on dragons has to do with jesus there's a story from a apocryphal gospel called the pseudo gospel of matthew and this was composed sometime probably in the 7th 8th century and in this story the holy family is traveling along and they decide to take a break. Jesus is about two years old at the time. They decide to take a break in a, in a cave out of the sun. And a horde of dragons and serpents come wriggling forth from this cave. And the servants are all screaming. And Mary and Joseph are terrified. And baby Jesus, or toddler Jesus, I guess, just wiggles down from Mary's lap and goes and stands in front of them and raises his hands. And they fall to the ground worshiping him. And the evangelist, the pseudo-Matthew, writes that it's a fulfillment of the line from Psalm 148 that says, praise the Lord from the earth, dragons, and all the depths. So, you know, just proving once again that Jesus, even as a tiny child, was already holy and recognized as such by even the worst elements in nature. So they don't burrow deeper like the the dragon and right the right and you know where where the panther is like christ awakening after three days in the tomb and the dragons are like the devil uh right. in it in it's his fear of of christ no this is different they they sort of overcome their naturally evil characteristics and and you know recognize his divinity so is the worm w-y-r-m is that synonymous with dragon in Oh, yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I was curious about that after we talked about worms. And it's a Norse word um, that seems to have come over into English with the Viking invasion. And worm stories are really popular in England, in English folklore. I mean, I think a worm is a specific type of dragon with no wings. Right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And there there are all these great folktales. I think the best one and the one that seems to have the most sort of legitimately medieval origins, although it's not written down until the 18th century, is the story of the Worm of Lambton. It is about this young man. He's a knight, or I guess he's a squire at this point. His name is John, and he's lazy, and he doesn't like going to church. So he goes fishing instead of going to church one day. And all he catches is this little squiggly eel-like creature. It's black. It's very specific in the folk tradition that has like nine holes on the sides of its head. And he's kind of disgusted by it. So he throws it down a well, you know, because a well is a place you throw your garbage. 
And then John goes off on crusade. And while he's off on crusade, this little eel that he's thrown down the well, or this thing that he thinks is an eel, grows into a full-size dragon or worm that crawls out of the well right. and then surrounds the hill that his father's estate is built on. So it, and it's really big. It wraps around the hill nine times. I don't know how big the hill is, but that's, that's gotta be a pretty long worm, that's right? Pretty long. And worm, yeah. it um, hangs out there eating all the local sheep and cattle and terrifying the villagers who appease it for some reason. I don't really understand with gallons and gallons of milk. That's what it likes. Yeah, I huh. know. And I don't know where they're getting the milk either, because obviously all, all the sheep and the, and the kind have been eaten. So anyway, he comes back from crusade, John does, and sees that there's this problem and sort of realizes like, oh, this is my fault. Somehow he realizes that this worm and that thing that he threw down the well are one and the same. So he... Um, he goes to a witch, of course, because what else are you going to do? And gets advice. And she says, okay, you have to kill the thing. But after you kill it, you also have to kill the next living thing you see. He's like, cool, got it. So he comes up with a plan. He gets the blacksmith to make him this spiky suit of armor. And then he says to his dad, who's still alive, he says, dad, look, this is what we've got to do. You've got to train a dog to come to my hunting horn. As soon as I've slain the the worm, I'll blow my hunting horn, you release the dog, the dog will come to me and I'll kill the dog. And that way I don't have to kill it, you know. Aww. I know, but I suppose it's better than killing your own father. So everything goes to plan. He wears the spiky suit of armor, the serpent or the worm attacks him, it cuts itself to pieces on his armor, he um, blows his hunting horn, and his dad releases the dog, but his dad is so excited that he also comes out from behind cover. And so the first living thing that John sees is his father. So he shuts his eyes, turns around, looks at the dog and kills the dog. But the next nine generations of Lamptons all die horribly and far from home as a result. Having Ooh. disobeyed the prescription by the witch. It is That's a great a story. story. And I, I love that. There are these details in it, like the milk. I just don't understand. It makes it feel more real. It makes that worm seem like more. something like, if, if you yeah. could understand why the milk, then it wouldn't seem quite as realistic. It would seem more like a metaphor. So the milk, if you could understand the milk, then you would have a natural, that's like in the natural history of the dragon, right? Which is like this persistent idea that they that they have a natural history, even from really early kind of physiologists. Right. And I wanted to ask you about that because I know that by the 15th century, this idea that if you could catch dragons and of course, guess where these dragons live? They live in Afghanistan, right? So they're mysterious creatures of the East. If you could catch these dragons that live in the mountains of Afghanistan and take the stone out of their forehead, it has miraculous healing properties. Is this something that's part of that larger tradition of the sort of natural history of dragons as you move into the early modern? It is, although sometimes it's the the stones in the eyes, right? So like the, I mean, maybe like, like some of the accounts of like the tiger, the natural history gets kind of most, most natural history seeming when they're talking about how does this group, not 
and usually it's this Eastern group, you know, how do they catch the bait, you know, the dragons? How do they do mm-hmm. this thing? How do they, you sort of get a, accounts of, of catching dragons and cutting their eyes out. But I'm sort of surprised by the extent to which dragons aren't orientalized mm-hmm. like so many other animals, because even though there's a lot of stories of dragons far, far away, you also get dragons closer to mm-hmm. home, right? Uh, so you get that folklore and like the, the dragon down the road. Mm-hmm. And then they're always cast as maybe specific to certain countries, but ever, but widespread, right? So like everywhere has their dragons. Mm-hmm. So that Topsils goes on most of the, rehearses most of those kind of stories that, you know, come down from physiologists. It all gets repeated, right? And, and Topsil are kind of compendious, encyclopedic as a natural historian, mm-hmm. just repeats all that. But then, you know, he says, hang on, just, just in case you think that, you know, dragons are always far, far away, right? Like, they're in Europe, too. And, like, here are some eyewitness testimonies of dragons, in, you know, in Europe and, and close by. Because uh, he wants to show that they are not uh, a creature from far, far away. Although, some of the dragons that he talks about in Europe seem to be really small, like four feet long. And he also says that dragons are a kind of serpent, which is a way of fudging the issue of, like, is it a dragon? Is it a serpent? He just says dragons are a special kind of serpent, right? Among all the kinds of serpents, there's none comparable to the dragon. And then he actually takes on the question of the wings thing. And just like you said, right, you know, there be some dragons which have wings and no feet. And some, again, that have both feet and wings. And some neither feet nor wings, but are only distinguished from the common sort of serpents by the comb growing upon their heads and the beard under their cheeks. A beard? So So a bearded serpent. A beard, yeah. Like the bearded serpent. Although, so a flying serpent then is like potentially a dragon. Sure. But then, and you know, but, but if dragons are a kind of serpent, then they're just a kind of serpent in the way that the manticore becomes a kind of hyena. Um, so they're naturalized in that way, except that they're always treated as if they are really very, very, very different than like other serpents. You know, they have their own long, long, long section. And do early modern authors talk about the sort of poisonous or fire-breathing qualities of these special serpents who are dragons? Well, the most interesting account in English for me is actually really late. So this might be sort of like the last account of a, of a natural a natural account of a natural dragon in its natural habitat in Sussex in 1614, mm-hmm. which is very late. You think, you know, <laughs> they should know better at this point. And it's about nine feet long. It's, it's sort of thick and it has poisonous mm-hmm. breath. Maybe not fire, but it certainly mm-hmm. has poisonous breath for sure. So it seems to be drawn from all the kind of like standard dragons, except that that account, which is an account of the dragon in Sussex. There's a great um, article on this by Jan Sturm at University of Wisconsin, who sort of takes apart the whole thing. The pamphlet is called A True and Wonderful Account of a Dragon or Serpent um, (laughs) in Sussex. So it starts with the word true, (laughs) right? right? It's already special pleading. Dragons by the early modern period are both representatives like, well, of course they're dragons and there's this natural history and et cetera, et cetera. But there always is a passage about, no, they really do exist, which means, of course, nobody thinks that they do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because because they're always they're always like sort of highly pitched. And that pamphlet, the drag, the dragon or serpent of Sussex becomes kind of like a joke. So it's referred back to later in popular culture whenever anyone wants to say, you know, like 
uh, talk about fake news, right? If they want to talk about fake news in the early modern period, you talk about the, you know, you talk about the serpent of Sussex. So it was immediately perceived as false, even though it constantly says just how true it is. And it does the whole, you know, some eyewitness testimony, although it's fudged in, in ways that make it hard to, uh, to justify. Uh, and Stern points out that the stationer's register, which is where you had to, l you had to list your, your uh, items before they went up to print and they could be, mm -hmm. they could be censored, right? There's, there's censorship all throughout mm -hmm. the early modern period that unlike many other works, there's like a note in the, in the part that authorizes publication saying, it's kind of a warning about this. And if there's any, if there's any consequences or problems with this, it's on the author. <laughs> right? like, the stationer's company no, you know, like, We bear no responsibility. <laughs> yeah. So kind of like everybody already knows that it is, you know, that it's just not a true huh, thing. Interesting. Uh, but it certainly performs it as, as like, it's, it is itself a sort of spectacular event. Um, right. The guy who published that pamphlet published a lot of other sensational right. events as well. And he always has a religious angle mm -hmm. to it. So it still ties back to that idea of, you know, of, uh, you know, dragon as, uh, if not Satan, then at least as sort of like evidence of yeah. sin, right? Like it's a punishment for sin. Phrases like there be many dragons in England suddenly makes you think that like, is this a real dragon or is this an opportunity dragon uh, that they're... <laughs> that they're using it reminds me of that uh quotation from ursula le guin our famous uh science fiction beloved science fiction author who said that people who deny the existence of dragons uh she said are likely to be eaten by dragons uh, from the inside <laughs> lovely <laughs> right which is which is both at like a doubling down on like dragons do exist but also a kind of an acknowledgement that dragons are kind of they're always sort of within us which makes me think about the the, the dragon in uh, you know uh, the horde of the dragon in right. uh, beowulf where yeah it's a natural animal behavior to sort of guard your your lair but it's also throughout the rest of that poem the humans are obsessed with treasure that's all they can think about oh. is you know obtaining and guarding treasure although the good king is always supposed to be generous and give away treasure so the dragon's kind of like a like an anti-reflection of somebody who won't give treasure away but it's still all about treasure so that dragon right. out there sitting on the hoard and pursuing the thief or becoming enraged by the the oh, treasure absolutely. being taken away is you know clearly a representation of a kind of a, a like the materialism or, or greed that's represented elsewhere in the poem as being totally part of human society that dragon's right, also inside right. you could say everybody. that beowulf uh, and the dragon are just two faces of the same coin you know really the coin of kingship and of course so beowulf doesn't really i mean he survives the 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 battle with the dragon for a while right but he dies of the he dies right. of the battle with the dragon and as he's dying the last, like, all he really wants is he says, like, let me, like, let me, I want right, to see Right, right, right. He has to go back to the scene <laughs> right? of the battle and to, to close the circle on that. Yeah, which my students are always a little appalled by that because, you know, he sets out to, you know, protect his people from this scourge. It's like killing animals and, yeah. you know, burning up the neighborhood and, like, he's protecting his people and it's all noble. But then at the end, it seems like he's still mainly thinking about the gold just like the dragon was yeah 
and he gets and he gets buried with his own you know he he gets put into another barrow full of gold which is presumably dragon bait yeah uh, you know the early middle ages here's an interesting thing when i was trolling around thinking about dragons looking at various different websites one of the things that came up was this fundamentalist evangelical website trying to understand the mentions that you know i i I said the 22 mentions of dragons in the Hebrew Bible. And the writer, the author of this website said, well, they're too plausible. And I'm going to put plausible in kind of brackets here. (laughs) There are two plausible explanations for this. One is that these are actually giant crocodiles because there are some very, very large crocodiles that, you know, we know were around in biblical times in this part of the world. Okay. And the other, writes this, I suppose, biblical scholar, is that these were, in fact, dinosaurs. Yeah, living, living dinosaurs. dinosaurs. Having persisted yeah. from... Yeah, so that's, that's the, the brackets around plausible. But anyway, that desire that... Like, it's all tied up in this desire to read the Bible as a literal text, which is so characteristic of yeah. Protestantism, especially in the early modern period, but today as well. And, uh-huh. and I wonder if uh-huh. your Sussex serpent isn't, if the Bible says there are dragons, there have to be dragons. You know, we have to, they, they are real because they're in the Bible, sort of getting back to where I began. Maybe, although that's not, that is not specifically the argument that's made because biblical dragons are simply lumped right. in with all the other dragons. Yeah. And it's, I don't think it's also, it's, it's not just that evangelical site, although its interpretation is is perhaps even more literal, because the existence of dragons in so many cultures is sent to people sort of scurrying for the plausible explanations for why this might be, which include things like fossil, mm-hmm. large fossil bones, right, which you could look at and say like, oh, that's, you know, it must be, so there's a dragon, um, although fossils are not uniformly found everywhere that the beliefs exist, so there's a kind of problem with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, that that tendency to look for the, like, what's the plausible explanation? What is this really is certainly there. It's sort of what fits in between the disbelief and the dragon, you know, the the understanding that a dragon is always a a sensational, non-real event, which is yet theologically Mm. real or psychologically Mm. real Mm -hmm. within us. And then this natural history of dragons that just says, well, you know, here they're, you know, they come in these colors and these sizes and they live in these right. places and just leaves it there. In between that is some like persistent idea that there must be a real explanation. Yeah. And I mean, I think we see that with so many of these creatures we're talking about, even some of them that modern Western science accepts as real creatures. I, I think we see these sort of struggles to provide both explanations. That is to say, to understand the creature metaphorically, but also to argue for its material physical existence in this world. Yes. Even if you displace it into, you know, some other, you know, it's a mistaken version of something else, which is usually the, the way that we do yeah. it today. Dragons are a large topic. I'm sure our listeners are already disappointed that we haven't covered enough about dragons, especially because of their cross-cultural presence. And these days, Chinese dragons are so hugely important and I think influence so much of the sort of popular dragon culture. It's all like the, because Chinese dragons are often very wise and very, very positive figures in ways that most of these, most of these medieval dragons are not. 
you know, we, we see a lot more positive, yeah. positive stuff. Don't try, don't try talking about the, 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 the evil, dra- the evil of the dragon right. smog to a young person who thinks dragons are cute and attractive creatures that they want to emulate. Themselves. Right. I mean, absolutely. And I mean, you mentioned Ursula Le Guin, who I think maybe started from a place of traditional Western fantasy sci-fi writing where the dragons were antagonists, but you know, in her Earthsea trilogy, by the time she gets, or her later Earthsea books, by the time she gets beyond the trilogy, the dragons become, yeah, these figures of wisdom and kind, a kind of semi-divine detachment. I mean, the dragons are are almost like Buddha figures, I think, in, in the later books. And they, they have a kind of transcendence that she lionizes. I mean, she really praises the dragons by the end of the series. So I think, yeah, there is this kind of evolution in our perception of dragons in Western sci-fi with the influx of, you know, East Asian dragon traditions and the sort of increasing global awareness, I guess you could say, of the dragon as a phenomenon. I think some of her dragons have a human form, right? They can either appear as a person or Mm -hmm. as a dragon, and I know that's present in some other folklore, but I I wonder is that a more is that come from um, uh, Eastern dragon traditions, or is there any medieval antecedent by which a dragon is always a word dragon? Yeah, I don't know of any examples of human beings transforming into dragons or vice versa in medieval literature from the West. Um, I mean, I know much less about East Asian folklore traditions. I do know that there are a number of different sort of motifs in Japanese folklore where human beings transform into animals or or rather animal spirits can manifest as human looking creatures. I would guess that maybe she's reading from that literature. I mean, it's it's not a real Fantastic Beasts episode, but, but there is a whole universe of thinking about Ursula Le Guin's practices as a multiculturalist in her in her source material. Yes, but there is room for more Fantastic Beasts on on uh, dragons and dragon lore. I think I think maybe we should consider this oh, to be part sure. one. And, part and one of the an issue. undetermined uh, number of episodes. I think we're going to have to bring in some you know dragon specialists really to get the full range and hopefully somebody who knows a little bit more about east asian dragons and maybe southeast asian uh dragons and and while we're at it how about let's get the uh maya wind serpent specialists in here to talk about flying flying snakes snakes that breathe fire and storm winds you know i mean it does seem to be oh and you know we didn't even talk about this but there's a sort of pseudo scientific or or science idea in antiquity in the middle ages that dragons are responsible for lunar and solar eclipses because there's a giant dragon that lives up in the celestial sphere and every once in a while it eats the moon yeah oh golly yeah so i I mean there's some great yeah we definitely have a lot more dragon territory to cover well that looks like we're 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 out of time for today but we'll revisit dragons we promise the dragons will be back Until next time.
If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out our other episodes along with notes and transcripts and some fun images at realfantasticbeasts.com. Thank <laughs> you.